Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, we ask that you would bless this time in our service where we open up your word. Father, help us to take it seriously. Father, you, your word is a precious gift to us. And we don't ever want to take it for granted. But it's not just something that is meant to be read. It is something that is meant to change us. And it has the power to change us, Father, if we will have teachable spirits. So, Father, we ask for your help. And Father, your spirit is here and present. And your spirit works to make Jesus exalted in our lives. And he does that through your word. And so, Father, we pray that as we study your word, Jesus would be praised and glorified and honored as your word is worked into our hearts and lives. Father, if we need to be convicted of sin, I pray that you would convict us and help us to run to Jesus, our Savior, for forgiveness. Father, if we need to be encouraged, I pray that you would encourage us. If we need to be challenged, I pray that you would challenge us. Lord, whatever you desire to do in our hearts, Father, do it for your glory, for our good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you would, open up your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to be looking at the passage verses 13 through 21. As you're turning there, I want to ask you a question. Don't answer it out loud. Just think about it. Um, What is your standard of living? Just think about it. What's your standard of living? I don't know how you answer that question. Probably, uh, definitely if we were to ask folks um, in our world, um, but even probably, even us as believers here today, first thing that comes to my mind when I think about standard of living, I begin to think about my income. I begin to think about what kind of house I live in or what kind of car that I do I drive uh, or maybe where I work or where I live, what neighborhood I live in. Sometimes these are the things that pop in our mind when we think about standard of living. And rightfully so, that's one way that we use that phrase, the standard of living. We kind of compare ourselves to where we once were and are we in a different standard of living now or we, how do we compare to other people? But God's not very much concerned with how much money you make or where you live or what kind of job you have as long as you're seeking to do those things and live in those places and spend that money for his honor and glory. And that already gets to what he is concerned with. It's how you live. That's what God is more concerned with. And the Bible presents for us, God gives us a standard for living. It's very clear. There are some things in Scripture that are not quite as clear. There are some things in Scripture that take a little, a little homework, a little research, uh, some, some long hour studying, and even then we're like, not exactly sure what that word means or what that phrase means or what, what the point is of that passage. There are some of those difficult things about the Bible. But there are some things that are crystal clear. Very clear. And God's standard for living for our lives is one of those things that is crystal clear. Clear. God's standard has never changed and it never will change. And it is a standard to which we all are held accountable. And so as we have begun studying through this letter of First Peter, 
we want to understand and realize, especially in our passage today, that as an elect exile, your standard of living is complete obedience to God. Your standard of living is complete obedience to God. Let's read this passage, verses 13 through 21. First Peter chapter 1. Therefore, Peter writes, Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. If you'll recall from our um, past few weeks of studying the first half of chapter 1, we know that Peter is an apostle of Jesus Christ and he is writing to the elect exiles. Elect exiles simply is a way of referring to those who have been chosen by God and have trusted Christ and are now living in this world, but not belonging to this world. Living in this world, and instead of belonging to this world, belonging to God. That's, how, that's who he's writing to. And so he's writing this letter, teaching these believers, these Christians, how to live as citizens of heaven while we still live in this world that is broken and fallen and consumed with sin. That, that's, that's, that's his objective. How do we live as citizens of heaven? If we trusted Christ, God has rescued us from our sin, and we'll talk about that in this passage today, then our citizenship is no longer in this world. We don't belong here, but we belong to heaven. How do we live out that new citizenship while we still live in a world where there's sin all around us? Peter began this letter, verses 3 through 12, with a call to praise. We spent several weeks there thinking about this call to praise, and he's been building this foundation of praise. Not simply just so we would stand around praising God, but because the foundation serves to uphold the structure, right? You don't just build a foundation and just leave it. You build something on the foundation. Then the foundation is crucial, but you want to build something on that foundation. And the thing that he is going to wants to build on that foundation is a life of obedience to Jesus Christ. A life lived in obedience. And so he's called us to praise God for salvation so that then we will be able to live in the way that God has called us to. If you want a main idea statement for this passage, it's this. The blessing of salvation will result in a lifestyle of obedience to the God who saved you. The blessing of salvation, which is, if you want to know what that blessing is, go back and read through verses 3 through 12 where we've been for the past few weeks, that is the blessing of salvation. The blessing of salvation will result in a lifestyle of obedience to the God who has saved you. That order, those word choices are extremely important. I didn't say the blessing of salvation will come to you 
after you are obedient to the God who wants to save you if you will just obey him. That's that's not the gospel. That's not salvation by grace through faith, which is the gospel that we have in God's word that Christ came and proclaimed. That's a workspace salvation. This is a call to live in obedience to God because he has already saved us. Notice the first verse, uh, excuse me, first word in verse 13. It's the word therefore. Anytime you see the word therefore, you want to look back at what has just been said. We don't want to leave verses 3 through 12 in the back and behind us. We don't want to say, all right, we're done with that salvation stuff. We're done with that gospel stuff. Now let's talk about how we live. Well, we're going to talk about how we live, and Peter's going to talk about that a lot in his letter. But it's all based on what God has already done for us in Christ Jesus in causing us to be born again to a living hope. Therefore, in light of the fact that God has saved you, now here is what you should do. We see this all throughout Scripture. We call this, if you want some some technical terms, we call this the indicatives and the imperatives of Scripture. Indicatives are statements of truth. Imperatives are things that we are commanded to do. And the order is extremely important. We could put it this way. Indicatives are something are things that are true of you. Imperatives are things that you should do. So indicatives are things that are just true of you. It's not about what you are supposed to do. It's just things that are true of you. He has spent verses three through twelve talking about things that are true of you. If you have trusted in Jesus Christ, you have been born again to a living hope. You have an inheritance that is in heaven waiting for you. You have a reason to rejoice. God is God is refining your faith, purifying you through the trials that you walk through. You have a beautiful place in the in the in the history of this world where you get to look back on the prophets and see what they said and then see that they have been fulfilled in Christ. And and all of that, you are you are obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Those are things that are true of you. We haven't been called to do anything yet in first Peter. Now he's going to get to the imperatives. He's told us things that are true of you. Now he's going to tell us things that you should do. The order is crucial. You don't do things for God so that the salvation will be true of you. Because the salvation is true of you, therefore you live in obedience to him. Say, Zach, you seem like you're belaboring this point. We really haven't gotten into the rest of the passage. And it's kind of a long passage. So let's let's get going. So many people, so many people, especially in our society. And I mean, our, I don't mean it just in America. I mean, like in the South. Get the order confused. And so I will till God takes takes my breath away from me. I will I will emphasize this truth because there will be people one day who stand before God and think they are getting into heaven because of things that they have done for God. And Jesus will say, depart from me, for I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. Because salvation is not attained by what you do. It is attained by what Jesus has done for you. And so if you're sitting here today and you're saying, okay, well, how then do I get into heaven? That seems like a pretty important question. It's by trusting And what Jesus did on the cross to rescue you from your sin. 
That's, that's faith. That, that's salvation by grace through faith. It is a free gift. You're saying it's really free? Yes, it is a really free gift. Completely free. And so today, if you have been trying to do things to earn your way into heaven, stop. Repent of your sin and believe in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. And then when you do that, you're ready for the therefore. Therefore, we have things that we're supposed to do. We don't just get saved and then live our lives however we want to live. Christian, if verses 3 through 12 is true of you, then pay attention to the therefore and what comes after. God has transformed us and he calls us to live in obedience to him. The privilege of salvation comes with the responsibility to do a few things. And I want to share these three things with you, and then we'll wrap up with the last few verses of this passage. The privilege of salvation comes with a responsibility. When we get saved, Jesus is not simply our Savior. He is our Lord. And so we are to live in a certain way. There are three, uh, three main commands that Peter gives in this passage. The first is to set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We see this in verse 3. So the privilege of salvation comes with the responsibility to, number one, live with your hope set on future grace. Live with your hope set on future grace. We see this in verse 13. He says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The command, the imperative, the thing that you're supposed to do that Peter is calling you to do in verse 13 is to set your hope on something. And that is grace. Grace that is coming in the future at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Say, but Zach, I thought I thought that we're already saved. I thought that when I trust in Jesus, I already received grace. So so I already have this grace. God's already shown it to me. Yes, that's true. But in another sense, our salvation is coming. That day when Christ returns, notice that it says at the revelation of Jesus Christ, the second time already in chapter two, excuse me, chapter one, that Peter has used this phrase, the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is a very forward thinking letter so that we'll live the right way in the present. Say, so how do I live as a Christian with all the temptations and the struggles and the and the and the, the war that rages against my soul here in this in this fleshly body? How do I do that? Well, the first thing Peter says to do is you got to set your hope on what's coming. You cannot be living for the things of this world. And the way that we do that is by making sure that our our minds are focused on the right thing. See, this is a call not simply to think the right way, but to to do the right thing, to say the right thing. But our actions of our hands, the words of our mouth, the direction of our feet all flow from the meditation of our mind. And so if our minds are dwelling on things of this earth, then we shouldn't be surprised when we say things that are worldly, when we do things that are worldly, when we go places that are worldly. And so it's a call To get our minds ready so that our hope is set on Christ. There's two qualifying statements. One is preparing your minds for action. The other is being sober minded. The phrase preparing your minds for action is literally the literal phrase. And some of your translations will have the the literal words there. It's gird up the loins of your mind. Now you can see why the translator said, let's change that to preparing your minds for action. They're not changing the meaning. 
to gird up the loins of your mind was a phrase that the original audience would have clearly understood. In those days, they wore the, the men wore long flowing robes. And so whenever they needed to do something in a hurry, they had to run somewhere. There was an emergency or maybe there was a battle cry. They would take the, the ends of their robes and they had they, they had a belt that was made so they could tuck those robes up in their belt so they could take off running. It's hard to run with a dress on. OK, and so I wouldn't know, but it seems like it would be hard to run with a dress on. And so so if, if, if they had to do something in a hurry and say, gird up your loins, I mean, they pick up your robe, tuck it in. And now you're ready for action. And so the phrase here is gird up the loins of your minds. Get your minds ready for action, having minds that are prepared. And the second qualifying statement for setting our hope fully on the grace that we brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ is being sober minded. It's being sober minded. Well, that's easy to understand what Peter is trying to say. What happens when you're drunk on alcohol? It fogs your mind. You cannot think clearly. And so he's calling them again. Just another way of saying preparing your minds for action. He's saying, make sure there's nothing fogging your mind. I think one pretty simple application here would say, well, yeah, that includes alcohol. Don't let that fog your mind because it's going to be really hard to then set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ and then to live in obedience to him if your mind is fogged with that. But that's not the only thing that fogs our mind. Anything, the call here to be sober-minded is to get rid of anything that would fog our mind, that would make it all cloudy in there so that we can't see right from wrong, so that we get focused on this world instead of what is coming. Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that is coming. What does it mean to hope in something? To set your hope in something? It means to, to look to that thing as that which will bring ultimate satisfaction, that which will be the final solution, the answer to my troubles, where I find my joy and my rest. Let me ask you a question. What is your hope set on today? There's all kinds of things in life that we set our hope on. And the first command here is to set our hope fully on what is coming. So here's what Satan wants to do in our lives as believers. He wants to distract us from what is coming with what is already here. So that we'll set our hope on things in this present life instead of what is coming. And when we do, we're not able to live in this present life the way that children of God are supposed to live. The way that exiles, the way that citizens of heaven are supposed to live. It's kind of counterintuitive. Set your mind on the future so that you can live the right way in the present. That's exactly what Peter is calling us to do. We live with our hopes set on future grace. But secondly, the privilege of salvation comes with the responsibility to live in holiness, to live in holiness. Verses 14 through 16. The main command here is to be holy, to be holy. Let's look at verse 14 through 16. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. What, is, what does it mean to be holy? What is that word? We throw that word around a lot. We talk about the Holy Spirit. We talk about holiness. We say God is holy. What does that mean? 
literally to be holy means to be set apart. It means to be separated. And in a spiritual sense, it means to be separated by God for God. To be separated for the purposes of God. Well, what are we separated from? We're separated from the ways of this world. Who are we separated to? We're separated to God to live like him and for him. This is not a new idea for Peter. This is not something that he came up with on his own. This wasn't original to the New Testament, to the church, to the early church. This is something that we see all the way back in the Old Testament. Over and over and over again, God reveals himself as holy and he calls his people to live holy lives. Notice that he even quotes the Old Testament here, which he does often in his letter. Verse 16 says, since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Where does that come from? Well, there's a lot of places in Scripture that we find those those words. He's quoting from a lot of different places. I'm not sure he has one particular place in mind. But one place we do see that is in Leviticus chapter 11. Leviticus chapter 11, verse 45 this is after they've come out, the Israelites have come out of Egypt. God has rescued them from the land of Egypt and he is giving them the law. He's telling them how they're to live now. And he says, for I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy for I am holy. God's purpose for his people has always been for them to live holy lives which reflect the image of the one in whose image they have been created. We have been created in the image of God, and he created us to reflect his holiness. In the beginning, Adam and Eve, they lived holy lives. There there was no evil in their hearts. They were set apart from holiness. But then sin enters the world. But God's standard hasn't changed. It's not that sin entered the world and then God lowered his standard. Sin in the world and God's standards stay the same. You shall be holy for I am holy. You say, how holy? As holy as God. How holy is God? Well, you can't get any holier than God. He is perfect in all his ways. There is no evil in him at all. And that's the standard of living that he is calling us to as Christians. But remember, don't get the order wrong. He doesn't say be holy so you'll be saved. Therefore, Because I've saved you, be holy. The same with the Leviticus passage. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Therefore, you shall be holy for I am holy. We'll put it in Christian terms. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery to your sin by the blood of my son Jesus Christ. Therefore, be holy for I am holy. Holy. You say, what parts of my life do I have to live in holiness before God as a Christian? Don't let me answer it. Let God answer it. He says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in some of your conduct. Right. Y'all pay attention. No. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in most of your conduct. Nope, that's still not right. Let's try it one more time. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. 
standard of living. It's high. It's a high calling. Let's just do what we need to do when we read his word. And look at our own lives through the lens of scripture. That's what we need to do. We don't like to do that. Because when we do, we're convicted of sin. So let's do it for a minute. Where in your life, Christian, are you living in holiness? And where in your life would you say it's sub-holy? Something less than the holiness of God. Maybe it's just in your heart, in your thoughts. Maybe it's something at home. Maybe it's something at work. Maybe no one knows about it except you. Maybe everybody knows about it. What is that area of your life where you would say, I don't think it's true of me that in all my conduct I am seeking to live a holy life. Conduct is another word for behavior. It's how you live. It's, how you, it's what you say. It's what you do. Peter's going to use this word conduct seven times in this short letter. Seven times he's going to talk about behavior. That helps us know that he is, he is very interested in how we live. Not just Peter, but God. God cares and is concerned about how we live our lives. Your salvation, Christian, is not simply a ticket to heaven. That you trust in Jesus. He hands you a ticket. You say thank you. You stick it in your pocket. You live the rest of your life however you want to live. And you get to heaven and you pull that ticket out and say, here's my pass. I can get in because one day a long time ago, I said I believed in Jesus. So here you go, God. Let me in. Our salvation is not simply a ticket to heaven. This is a Lifelong, lifelong call of obedience to the one who has graciously saved us. Salvation changes who we are right now. It doesn't just change our eternal destination. Notice what he says. He says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. That means there's a change that has taken place. He's saying, used to, you didn't know how to live. You didn't know what you were supposed to do. And if you did, you weren't doing it. But that was then and this is now. You are a new creation in Christ. Right? He has caused us to be born again. We're new. A change has taken place if you have trusted Christ and He has saved you. If your life doesn't look different than it used to, my question would be, are you an elect exile? Are you a Christian? And same line of reasoning, if your life doesn't look different than the world around you, are you an elect exile? Are you a Christian? Remember, if the answer is no, my life doesn't look different than it used to. No, my life doesn't look different than the world. The answer isn't clean up your act. The answer is go back to verses 3 through 12. Trust in Jesus for salvation and then he will clean your act up for you. Got to keep going. Number three. The privilege of salvation comes with the responsibility to live with a proper fear of God. 
to live with a proper fear of God. Notice verse 17. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct, there it is again, behave yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. It's an interesting verse here. What is, what's, what's Peter trying to, to remind his readers of? Well, he's simply saying this. Don't forget who it is that you're calling father. We get a grand privilege as Christians to call the Most High God Father. That's, a, that's an endearing term. That's a term of intimate relationship. We have zero right in and of ourselves to be able to go to the Most Holy God and say, Father. We ought to say, oh, one who is so different than me and so distant from me and so unlike me and who I'll never be like and, and whose presence I should be rejected from forever. That's how we should address God because of our sin. Instead, we get to go to him as father. But in our going to God as father, in our enjoying the privileges of salvation, let us not forget who our father is. He's not our best friend. He's not our buddy. He is God. And in the role of father, he has the authority in our lives. I don't want my children to think of me as their best friend. And so, that's kind of rude. Wouldn't you want your kid to say, oh, my daddy is my best friend? Well, if they were to happen to say that, which they don't, because they like their granny and their gramps and their aunts and all these others more than me most of the time, because <laughs> they get whatever they want from them, but, but, if they were to say, oh, you're just my best friend, Daddy. Oh, you're so sweet. Okay. But my goal is not for my kids to think of me as their best friend. My goal is for my kids to think of me as their father. Because I have the authority over them in their lives. And that comes with a measure of respect and proper fear. So that when Daddy says, don't touch that, I listen. Because he's my daddy. He is my father. He is an authority over me. Now on a much bigger scale. God is our father. But he is still God. And he's not there just to give you whatever you want. And let you live however you want to live. He has the authority. He is the authority figure in your life. Now we don't have to be scared of God as Christians not a Christian, you should be scared. You don't have to stay scared. You can trust in Jesus and be adopted into his family, and you don't have to be scared of him anymore. As Christians, we don't have to be scared of God, but we do have a proper fear of him. Understanding that when he speaks, we ought to listen. When his word says, don't do this, we ought not do it. When his word says, do this, we ought to do it. It's not a suggestion. Notice what he says about the Father. Our Father judges impartially according to each one's deeds. Even as Christians, we will experience a judgment. Now our salvation is secure. But God will flip through our deeds and see how we've done with the life that he's given us, the new life that he's given us. Therefore, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Remember who this is. Remember who it is that saved you. This is the God of the universe. 
Don't ignore Him when He speaks. Now here's the thing. While God is a judge, and while we have a reverent fear of Him, He also is a judge who sent His only Son to die on the cross to rescue us from our sin. And so, Peter can't even get very far in his imperatives. This is what you should do. This is how you should live. Before he's right back into the indicatives. Telling us things that are true about us. Reminding us of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look at verses 18 through 20. He stops making commands. He's already made three commands. Set your hope fully on the grace that's coming. Be holy in all your conduct. And act with fear throughout the time of your exile. That means while you're still here on the earth. That means have a reverent respect and fear of God. But then look at verses 18 through 21. He then reminds us once again of what God has done for us. So while the privilege of being a Christian comes with a responsibility, the responsibility of Christian living comes with a need. One, to remember that you have been ransomed. You say, where, where is my motivation for living the life that God has called me to live? It's hard to live holy. It's hard to live with a reverent fear of God in a world that mocks Him. It's hard to set our hope fully on the grace that's coming when there's all these things that would distract us all around us. It's hard. This life is hard. That's why it's called the life of an exile. And Peter's going to talk about some of the ways and uh, ways that it's hard and how we deal with that later in his letter. But before we even get to that, he reminds us again of the gospel. He says, remember that you have been ransomed, knowing, knowing that you have been ransomed. From the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but that with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. The reality of being ransomed is a done deal. While we're waiting for the revelation of Jesus Christ, our ransoming, our, our having been rescued from our sins, it's done. Jesus has paid it all. It's a past act. We have been ransomed. From what? The feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. From the worldly ways that are passed down from generation to generation, from one sinner to the next. How does he describe the ways of this world? Feudal, worthless, meaningless. Listen, if you're living the way of the world, you're living a life, basing your life on things that have zero value. No lasting value at all. God calls them worthless, feudal, Meaningless. And He rescues us from that. How? With the precious blood of Jesus. Not with perishable things, but with the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. Like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. That's the only blood that could save us. The blood of someone who is perfect. That's why God had to become a man. Because it had to be a perfect sacrifice. When He shed His blood, He was the perfect sacrifice. And here's what happens. Jesus died on the cross to save you from your sin. Not save you to sin. 
So as Christians, when we engage in sin, we are trampling the blood of Christ. We are rejecting the very reason He hung on the cross. And Peter's saying, you wouldn't trample gold and silver, would you? We wouldn't throw those on the ground and stomp on them. No, because we value them. And those things are perishable. You've been ransomed with the blood of Christ. Why would you trample it by living ungodly lives? Christian. Not only do we remember that we've been ransomed, but we need to, if we're going to take our responsibility of Christian living seriously, understand that it's a result of God's eternal plan. Verses 19, uh, excuse me, 18 through 21 serve as an incredible motivation for living holy lives, even when it's hard, even when those around us aren't. Not only has Jesus ransomed you, Christian, from your sin, that he doesn't want you to engage any anymore. He has this planned before he even created the world. Look at what he says. He, talking about Jesus, the lamb, was foreknown before the foundation of the world. We already looked at this word foreknown back in verse 2 when it says, according to the foreknowledge of God, we are elect exiles. And as we studied that, we saw this foreknowledge is not simply just, I know that something's going to happen in the future like God is all-knowing. It is a, it is a plan. Is, a, is God's choosing. You, you could even translate that word God chose before the foundation of the world to send Jesus. He was chosen by God for this task before the foundation of the world. And then he was made manifest in these last times. That means he was made known. God knew he was going to do it. He already chose to send Jesus. But then in these last times, this last age in which we live, Christ has appeared for the sake of you who through him, as through Jesus, are believers in God. So the only way we're believers in God and been rescued is through Jesus, through his death on the cross. And God raised him from the dead and gave him glory. God is exalting Jesus Christ so that our faith and our hope are in God. The death of Jesus was foreknown by God. Therefore, our salvation was foreknown by God. Jesus was made known to sinners. That's that word manifest. Therefore, we can know God. Jesus was exalted. That's what it means to give him glory. He's exalted by God for conquering death. Therefore, we ought to exalt Jesus in our living as we seek to live for his glory. And all of this is a part of his eternal plan. Jesus dying was a part of God's eternal plan. Jesus died so that we would live holy lives. So when we sin, we're rebelling against the eternal plan of God. How's that for motivation? I don't want to sin because I don't want to trample the blood of Christ. And I don't want to sin because I don't want to rebel against the eternal plan of God. But I can't do that by myself. The fact that Jesus shed his blood and the fact that that is part of God's eternal plan means that it's not just the motivation not to sin, it is the means how can I live a holy life? This is because Jesus shed his blood to rescue me and it was a part of God's eternal plan and nothing can change that. So when I'm in that moment of decision, do I keep looking? Do I keep scrolling? Do I keep clicking? 
because I know what I'm looking at is not honoring the Lord. Remember the blood of Jesus. And remember God's eternal plan for you. When the relationship is on the rocks, and it seems like it would be easier just to walk out and leave. Say, no, that wouldn't be what God wants me to do. He shed His blood so that I would love my spouse even in his or her failings. And as a part of His eternal plan that I would do so and live a holy life. When everyone else says, oh, nobody's going to find out. Say, no, Jesus shed His blood. It's a part of His eternal plan for me to live different than you, and you and you, because you belong to the world. My citizenship is in heaven. God has called us to be different. And it's okay when we look different. It's right when you look different than those around you. This is, listen, this is God's word. Serious stuff. It's a, it's a slap in the face of God to take the salvation that He has given us at the cost of His Son according to His eternal plan. Sticking in our back pocket and it not affect the way that we live. Moment by moment, day by day. This passage is calling you to look different, Christian. Different than your former manner of life and different than the world around you what it means to be holy. It means to be different. This is the standard of living that God has called us to. No ifs, no ands, no buts. He doesn't lower His standard, Christian. But He gives you everything you need in Christ to live the way He's called you to live so we have no excuses. Where is your conduct not measuring up to the standard of holiness that God has set for you. Here's what you do with that. You repent. You ask God to forgive you by the blood of Christ. And you rest in the forgiveness that He freely provides. And then through the power of the Holy Spirit that lives in you, Christian, you choose not to live that way anymore. That's our response. Whatever God is convicting you of now, whatever sin is in your heart, whether it's a hateful thought towards someone that you've had this week, maybe it's a sin of gossip, maybe it's lying, maybe it's lust, maybe it's being short-tempered speaking unkind words to your children, to your spouse, to your employees, or to your mom or your dad. What do we do with that? We remember that we've been ransomed. We ask for forgiveness. And by God's power, we choose not to do that anymore. I have a deep desire 
for myself and for our church, that we would be marked by holiness. It's what that phrase, obedient children, means. It means a life characterized by holiness. Christian, this is what God has called you to. Don't lower the standard. God does it. Let's pray. Father, we need your help to put your word into practice. Help us to live holy lives. Father, if there's someone in here today who is a follower of Jesus but knows that they have not been living the way that you've called them to, Father, I pray that you would help them turn from their sin and that they would rest in the grace that is already theirs in Christ. Father, that you, through your Holy Spirit, would help them turn from that path of sin and live in a way that brings you honor and glory. Father, it's hard. You know, you've told us in your word that it's not going to be easy, but you've given us everything we need to live different than the world around us. Father, there's someone here today who has never experienced the grace of salvation. They don't have a grace to set their hope on. There's nothing waiting on them except your judgment and punishment for their sin. Father, today I pray that they would trust in Jesus so that they too will be ransomed by the blood of Christ, that precious blood shed for us so that we would live holy lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.